1: Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman.
2: On Saturday nights, to bring to you the greatest stars of the popular music world, the stars that you made famous on American Bandstand, like these people here, the Royal Teens with Short Short. Mm, man, dig that
1: crazy chick!
2: Oh, man, Short Short.
1: That's the one and only big hit that the royal Teens ever had. Hit number three on Billboard's chart way back in 1958, and personally I have to admit that I first became familiar with the song when Nair began to use it in their television commercials back in 1975. The song was co-written by then 15-year-old Bob Gaudio, who would later find fame as the keyboardist and principal songwriter for the four seasons. Among the hits that he penned, and these are very big hits, are Sherry, Big Girls Don't Cry, Walk Like a Man, Ragdoll, Can't Take My Eyes Off You, and of course, December 1963, Oh What a Night. But I've already detoured a bit off topic. Today's podcast is not about Bob Gaudio or Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons, or even about any of their hits. It's about shorts. In particular, short shorts and the scandalous amount of skin that they reveal, at least way back when. So let's zip back to June 16th of 1935. Here we find William Slater. He's an alderman for the 9th Ward of Yonkers, New York, and he's posted at the intersection of McLean Avenue and the former Croton Aqueduct, and he's just waiting to jump into action. He was accompanied by a professional photographer armed with a movie camera. Slater chose this particular spot because it was located just north by about 100 yards or 100 meters from the border between New York City and Yonkers. This just happened to be the starting point for thousands of hikers who wished to leave the heat of the big city behind, and many were headed for Tibbettsbrook Park. Now, the park is a bit peculiar in the fact that the park is owned by the county, that's Westchester County, while all the land surrounding the park was within the city of Yonkers. And then it happened. First one group of two girls and then another group of three set foot into Yonkers while Alderman Slater had their actions recorded on film. Now, it's not what the girls were doing that was the problem. Instead, it's what they were wearing. They were all wearing shorts that were cut too high and some even had the nerve to wear revealing bandana halters that were knotted around their necks. Once Slater was sure that he had captured the necessary evidence on film, he summons two patrolmen and ordered them to round up the girls, all of them between the ages of 18 and 25 years. They were supposedly in violation of a city ordinance which banned the appearance of any scantily clad person on the streets of Yonkers. All five were issued summons and ordered to appear before a city court judge the next day. I should point out that the alderman's actions were not without merit. He told reporters he had received numerous complaints from residents who lived in the area surrounding Tibbettsbrook Park about inadequately attired hikers who passed through their neighborhood nearly every Sunday during the warmer months. Four of the five women appeared before Judge Martin Fay that Monday, but Alderman Slater appeared to have a change of heart. He decided not to make a formal complaint against the women, claiming he did not, quote, wish to embarrass the girls. As a result, the judge let the girls go with the following warning All we desire you to do is just dress the way the women in Yonkers dress when upon our public streets. This did not mean that Slater was going to simply turn a blind eye to the filth that was now strolling down the streets of Yonkers. He promised that if it happened again, additional summonses would be issued and, if needed, more drastic legal action would be taken. By now, the story had made national headlines, so the operators of the Yonkers Alpine Ferry, which ran back and forth across the Hudson River to the Palisades Interstate Park in New Jersey, they decided to use the publicity to their advantage they opted to set up a free dressing room and check room in their Yonkers terminal for anyone who wished to use it. The idea was that the girls would wear their skirts and sweaters while passing through the streets of Yonkers, and once they arrived at the ferry station, they could remove these garments and leave them behind. That allowed them to spend the whole day hiking in the Palisades in their less bulky clothing. And of course, upon return to the Yonkers' side of the river, they could then put back on their skirts and sweaters and wander the streets of Yonkers without fear of the law. A New York Times editorial offered this advice, quote, Because shorts have conquered the tennis courts and are beginning to make their way in golf, it does not follow that a pair of very concise pants is an ideal costume for mountain climbing. It continues, Certainly the scarf that young women wear on the beach when doing nothing in the sun is not the thing to wear on a long hike in the woods where you're apt to perspire and catch cold. I love this part. A sweater is much better. Clearly this person has never hiked on a hot day wearing a sweater. The following weekend, the shorts parade, as Alderman Slater called it, continued. Continued. While some did take advantage of the free skirt check down at the ferry, others opted to do as they had previously done. They simply strolled to Tibbettsbrook Park in their shorts and halter tops. But this time the police did absolutely nothing, so Slater decided to take matters into his own hands. He sponsored an ordinance that would forbid this type of offensive behavior from ever happening again. On July 2nd, the Board of Aldermen passed an ordinance that stated, quote, No person over 16 years of age shall be permitted to appear in bathing costume or in any other than customary street attire upon any street or thoroughfare in the city of Yonkers. The punishment for violation of this ordinance would be a fine not to exceed $150 and or imprisonment for up to 30 days. Ouch. Initially, this appeared to work, even though the ordinance had still not been signed into law by the mayor. The July 4th holiday was just a couple of days later, and police reported that not one single woman had been spotted in Yonkers wearing shorts. In addition, not a single person took advantage of the skirt and sweater check that the ferry service so generously offered. But, as they say, be careful what you wish for. First, it was widely reported that a group of models wearing shorts threatened to picket outside Alderman Slater's home, which was located at 67 First Avenue. But luckily for him, their protests failed to materialize. Then there were reports of young women who walked along a road that bordered Yonkers in New York City. They would button up their skirts while briefly walking through Yonkers. But as the road crossed back into New York City territory, they would just rip off their skirts and shake their shorts-covered bodies at the policemen. No arrests were made, but the officers probably enjoyed the show. Summer eventually came to a close, and one would have thought that would have been the end of the story. You know, At best, it was a story that should have been in the news for just a few days. But fast forward to the spring of 1936. Once again, stories regarding Yonkers' shorts band started to appear in the press. And at first, everything was cool and calm. I find this hard to believe, but 10 policemen were assigned to the anti-shorts patrol over the Memorial Day holiday weekend. Alderman Slater announced that signs would be erected on the streets bordering New York City, warning the young women of the consequences for wearing revealing clothing on their streets. And then it finally happened. On Sunday, June 21, 1936, 26-year-old Rose O'Gorman of Elmhurst, Long Island, and 25-year-old William Mathias of Brooklyn, they took a cab to the corner of McLean Avenue and Lawton Street in Yonkers. When both emerged from the taxi at 2.25 p.m., they were wearing, you guessed it, shorts. They immediately went up to patrolman Arthur Rowland and John O'Hare and demanded they be arrested for violation of the Anti-Shorts Ordinance. It was soon learned that both worked for the New York Daily News, and they were there to test the validity of this new law. The Daily News bailed both of them out. The two appeared before Judge Charles W. Booth the next day, and each was found guilty and fined $10. That's about $172 today, and they were released. The verdict was immediately appealed in court on the grounds that the ordinance banning anything quote other than customary street attire was just too vague. Could one get arrested for wearing a wedding dress, a tuxedo, you know, a boy scout uniform or a halloween costume? This was something for the courts to decide. On January 6, 1937, Westchester County Judge Gerald Nolan denied the appeal on the grounds of the full language of the law not a little snippet of it, made clear what the intent of the law really was. An appeal was immediately filed to the Court of Appeals in Albany, New York. By a unanimous vote on May 25th, they invalidated the anti-Shorts law. Chief Judge Frederick E. Crane wrote that the ordinance was, quote, so vague and meaningless as to reach many harmless and insipid foibles. He continued, quote, the purpose of the ordinance is to prevent indecent exposure such as an appearance on the streets as shocks the moral sensibilities of our communities. The ordinance to be legal should so state or else describe the costume or lack of which is prohibited. In response to his ordinance being thrown out by the courts, Alderman Slater said, quote, I will have to wait for a copy of the decision before I know the next step. He added, It depends entirely upon the grounds it was thrown out whether I'll offer a revised ordinance on street attire. Someone was just around the corner and now Yonkers had nothing on the books from preventing people from walking around their streets with excess flesh exposed. In what can only be described as a Donald Trump-esque move four Yonkers supervisors appealed to the Westchester County Parks Commission to wall off Tibbicks Brook Park by erecting a giant fence to keep those undesirable New York City residents out of their park. The idea was that the fence would totally encircle the park, excluding one main entrance on Yonkers Avenue at its north end. And since New York City was located far to the south it would be too inconvenient for them to travel all the way around the park to gain entrance. Residents of Westchester County would receive free admission cards, while non-residents would have to pay an admission fee. Supervisor Jefferson Armstrong stated this about their unwanted New York City visitors, quote, They are displaying themselves in the most ungodly and indecent manner. Many are getting off the train in Bronxville and walking across Palmer Avenue to the park, stopping on the way to sun themselves. He added, My wife and I have often come across great masses of humanity reclining on the ground in the most disgusting clothing. Needless to say, this particular fence was never built. Instead, on August 17th, a new modesty ordinance was signed into law by Mayor Joseph F. Lair. It stated, quote, No person shall wear upon a public street or thoroughfare in the city of Yonkers a bathing suit, shorts, halter, or any costume or clothing which indecently exposes or reveals any part of the wearer's person. Almost immediately, others started to question the validity of the law. Was this also too vague? Would those running the annual Yonkers Marathon have to wear long pants? would children be exempted from the law? No one seemed to know the answers. Yet no one ever challenged the new ordinance in court. This is partly because Alderman Slater was now out of office, the fact that the city had tired of enforcing the law and all the bad publicity it created, and probably most importantly, the times, as they say, were a change in By 1940, the city stopped assigning patrolmen to seek out those wearing shorts. In July of 1942, then-Mayor Benjamin F. Barnes told the press he would seek to have the ordinance repealed. Yet, I was able to locate newspaper articles from both 1950 and 1960 that stated that the ordinance was still on the books but was no longer enforced. If you're curious as to what the rules are today, Article 73-1 of the Yonkers City Code states, A female is guilty of exposure when, in a public place, she appears clothed or costumes in such a manner that a portion of her breast below the top of the areola is not covered with a fully opaque covering. The penalty for violation of this ordinance can be as much as $5,000 and up to 15 days in jail. The regulation was adopted on September 22, 1970, but I doubt it would hold up in court today since it is legal in New York State for a woman to dress just as a man does. Wherever a man can go shirtless, so can a woman. Useless? Useful? I'll leave that for you to decide.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. They're
2: marvelous. I love that grand new flavor. So wholesome and good, I'm glad the children ask for them often. Now, there's something I really like. Boy, what flavor. Hey, Mom, can I have some more? What's all the excitement about? Say, friends, haven't you heard? The whole town's talking about the new Manischewitz American Matzas. They're new in size, new in flavor, and what a flavor it is. An exciting, inviting, new taste sensation. A friendly, satisfying taste and goodness that beats anything you've ever tried. That's why Manischewitz American Matzas have won thousands of enthusiastic friends overnight. You'll love them, too. You'll enjoy the crunchy oven freshness of Manischewitz American mozzas. You'll like their wholesome, hearty taste. And what's more, you'll enjoy serving these crisp, new matzas to your family, to friends and guests. Because everyone goes for Manischewitz American mozzas from the very first bite. So promise yourself to try them tomorrow. Ask your grocer for Manischewitz American Matzos in a cellophane wrap package with a red, white, and blue label and enjoy them every day. There is nothing, nothing that, that quite hits the spot day. so The family will mm-hmm. like it, I like so When they're set to eat Just give them this treat Manischewitz American Matzos M A N I S C H-A-W-I-T-Z. Now, if you ladies and gentlemen would like to witness a broadcast of Yiddish Melodies in Swing, address your requests for tickets to Manischewitz Matzas, W-H-N, New York.
1: I apologize for the poor quality of that recording, but unfortunately there aren't many preserved commercials for matzah out there. That commercial for Manischewitz brand matzah is from the November 24, 1940 broadcast of Yiddish Melodies in Swing, as you heard. This particular episode was titled Bridegroom Special. The story of Manischewitz matzah begins in 1888 when Rabbi Rudolf Baer Manischewitz made the voyage from Lithuania to the United States. What's odd about the story is that his last name wasn't Manischewitz. It was Abramson. At the time, it was incredibly difficult for Jews to obtain a passport to leave the Russian Empire, so Abramson did the next best thing. He purchased the passport of a dead man named Maneshevitz. Upon arriving in Cincinnati, the good rabbi found there was a shortage of Passover matzah, so he decided to start baking it himself to sell to others. His original matzahs were simply called Cincinnati matzahs, But soon others started calling their matzahs by the same exact name, and that's when the Manischewitz brand name was born. As sales increased, Manischewitz began to automate his factory to make mass production possible. Today, Manischewitz is the largest baker of matzah in the world, and probably, I would guess, the best known kosher brand out there. I haven't had a piece of matzah in years, it appears on my grocer's shelves every year right before Passover, but I just can't justify purchasing an entire box because I know I'll never finish it. Personally, I really miss the matzai lakas my grandfather used to make for all the kids while we were growing up. I've tried to reproduce his recipe a few times over the years, but they just don't come out right. I don't know, maybe he had some secret ingredient that made them so special, but I doubt it. Most likely, it was just our incredible admiration for him that made the latkes taste that much better. So let's move on to the question of the day. Now, If you're heavily invested in the stock market, you may have seen a great loss, at least on paper, over the past week since Britain voted to leave the EU. Which got me thinking about the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Today, the Dow Jones consists of 30 large corporations, but when it started on May 26, 1896, just 12 companies made the list. And of those original 12, only one still remains on the list. So can you name that company? And it is a big company, obviously. Here's what some of my friends had to say. General Electric. GE. General Electric. Xerox. GE. Coca-Cola. Oh, General Electric. I'll stop there, because everyone was saying General Electric. I thought maybe someone say AT&T or something like that. So the question is, are they right or are they wrong? Well, believe it or not, they are correct. General Electric is the only company from the original Dow that's still on the list. I should point out that General Electric was dropped from the Dow a couple of times in the early days, but it hasn't left the list since 1907. So here's a quick rundown of the other 11 companies on the list. I'm going to try and tell you what happened to the companies, although I'm not 100% sure this is all correct, but I'll do my best. The first was American Cotton Oil Company, which is now part of Unilever or Unilever, however you want to pronounce it. Then there's American Sugar Company, which became eventually Domino Sugar, Domino Foods, and was ultimately purchased by ASR, which stands for American Sugar Refining. Then the Chicago Gas Company, which can now be traced to the WEC Energy Group. This is followed by the Distilling and Cattle Feeding Company, which is now Millennium Chemicals. The Lackley Gas Company still operates as the Lackley Group, and it was removed from the Dow in 1899. National Lead Company became NL Industries. I guess they just don't want anyone to know they deal in lead. North American companies consisted of 80 electric utilities, and that was until the SEC broke it up in 1946. Tennessee Coal, Iron, and Railroad Company was purchased by U.S. Steel in 1907. Then there's U.S. Leather Company, which was dissolved in 1952. In fact, it's the only company of the original 12 to be totally liquidated. And the last one on the list is United States Rubber Company. That became Uniroyal, which was later purchased by the French tire maker Michelin. In other news, since today's main story on the Yonkers' anti-skirt law involved people showing too much skin, I figured why not a few more stories that also involved too little clothing. Actually, too little is probably not the word. Let's just say no clothing, birthday suits. Our first story is dated July 20th of 1936, was reported that a Long Valley, New Jersey constable named Will Searles had been staging a one-man war against a local nudist camp. His basic plan of attack was to shame the nudists into wearing clothes. He did this by constantly peeping over their fences. The number of nudists did decline, but the war was about to escalate, and that's because the girlfriend of Searles' son drove the family car into a ditch while she was distracted by the people bathing in the buff. Searles was so outraged by their behavior that he pulled out his binoculars to hunt the nudists down. About a half dozen saw cover nearby brush when Searles then warned them that they had to stop or risk arrest beginning the next week. Searles' plan was to invite hundreds of people to help him in his peeking. My guess is that there were many willing to help, but I'm not really sure they wanted the nudists to cover up. On May 21, 1938, it was reported that two men named Ivy Anderson and Dean Green had a hike 14 miles across snow-covered hills, stark naked. This wasn't some sort of prank or endurance adventure. It seems that the two men parked the car and decided to swim Slats Creek. After disrobing, they tied their clothes into a bundle and threw them across the stream. As you can probably guess, the clothes fell short of the shoreline, and they were carried away by the stream's current. So they hiked four miles back to the car, only to realize that the car keys, guess where they were? They were in their pants pocket and were headed downstream. They decided to hike 10 miles to Strawberry, California to seek help, and one can presume to get some clothes. And the last story I have for you today is dated May 9, 1967. was reported that New York City criminal court judge Milton Shallock handed down a ruling in the case of 28-year-old Charlotte Mormon. She was found guilty of performing a lewd act because she played her cello topless in a theater performance on February 9th. In his 20-page opinion, the judge wrote, quote, The pristine beauty of the human female breast has been immortalized by paintings and sculptors and writers of poetry and prose. In the literary arts, too, the descriptive allusions to the fullness of the female figure conjure up the image of its beauty. He continued: But no poem in no prose respected by the test of time have I read, and no valued oil in no statue or bust have I seen, either visually described or portrayed, a picture of a nude or topless cellist in the act of playing the instrument. I wonder if anyone has. He goes on, but you get the idea. If you play cello, keep your clothes on. Ms. Mormon received a suspended sentence because the judge found her to be, quote,
2: Go to your happy
1: price, price line. Well, that brings another episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. You can find additional true stories just like the one you heard on my website, which is uselessinformation.org, and in the two books written by Steve Silverman. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. Be sure to like the show on Facebook. You can do so by doing a quick search for the Useless Information Podcast there. And lastly, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or just about any other podcast indexing service. I'm on Google now. uh, And you'll receive automatic updates when a new episode is released. Anyway, thanks as always for listening, and I hope you tune in the next time. Bye. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge.